Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. This is David Crowther, the author of the History of England podcast. The history of Rome is one of the greatest stories on earth. It's got everything. And yet, take that, times it by two, and you've got Byzantium. So, of course, I listen to and love Robin's History of Byzantium, and not just because it has one of my favourite figures in history, Belisarius. I do enjoy the odd blinding as well. My podcast, The History of England, and my shiny new podcast, Anglo-Saxon England, does pretty much what it says. It's history about England and it's a podcast. Don't know what else to say, really. I like it, and my mum does too. We'd love to have you join us, but for the moment, concentrate, because Robin is about to speak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 82, The Decline and Fall of the Arab Empire. Last time we looked west, today we look east, as we return to 700 AD to chart the developments within the Caliphate during the 8th century. Actually, let's go back a little further and just remind ourselves of the outline of the history of the Arab Empire. As you know, the Arab armies appeared in the 630s, and by 650 they had reached Afghanistan and Egypt. All of Persia and half of Byzantium were in their pockets. Two serious civil wars followed, one in the 650s as Muawiyah established the Umayyads as the ruling dynasty and made his capital in Damascus, another in the 680s, which saw Abd al-Malik emerge as the leading man of the Umayyad family. Those civil wars had presented the possibility that the caliphate might break up. Sunnis and Shiites were not the only division within the Islamic world. There were many other groups with their own view on how the new state should be ordered, along with the vast non-Arab populations who might crave independence. As I've discussed briefly before, Abd al-Malik is the man who put in motion a campaign to further unify his realm through Arabization and Islamization. It was he who went to war with Justinian II, ostensibly because of the change in coinage that each side adopted. 
The Byzantines had added an image of Jesus to their currency, and the caliph removed all images from his. Verses from the Quran would now be the only decoration on Muslim money. Copies of the Quran itself were made in large numbers and distributed. New buildings sprung up with no pictorial representation and specifically Islamic dedications. And as the 8th century began, the caliph ordered that all imperial business must now be conducted in Arabic. For local elites from Kairawan to Kazakhstan, the need to learn Arabic went hand in hand with Arabization. They took on Arab patrons, adopted Arab names, and recited the poetry of the desert. Their grandchildren would often grow up thinking of themselves as Arabs. Abd al-Malik also wanted to take the restive energy he'd seen during the Civil War and direct it against the Empire's enemies. This led to more spectacular conquests for the Caliphate. By 720, the Arab armies had swept across North Africa and Spain, up to the north of the Caucasus, east toward India, and northeast into the steppes. It was an extraordinary series of campaigns, but you know what they say about all good things. The caliphate was reaching large natural barriers to further conquest. Once out into the steppes, it was far harder to accumulate new territory as cities could be spread hundreds of miles apart. Eventually, the western Turkic tribes began to strike back. In modern Pakistan, the Arabs faced stiff resistance from two of the Indian kingdoms as they tried to advance beyond the Indus River. Massive rebellions by the Berber population led Africa to virtual independence by the middle of the century. The Khazars began a bloody war in the Caucasus in the 720s, and of course, as you know, Charles Martel and his successors slowly pushed the Spanish invaders back behind the Pyrenees, while Leo III oversaw the successful defence of Constantinople in 717. Despite its world-changing success, the Arab Empire was still very much a work in progress. The sons and grandsons of Abd al-Malik tackled a series of problems during the 720s and 730s. As you would expect, money was at the centre of it all. Despite leaving in place the Roman and Persian tax systems, the Umayyads had not devised a successful way to ferry that cash back to Damascus. Arab government was still based on personal ties. The caliph hand-picked the governors of his major provinces, and these provinces were huge. There was one man ruling the whole of Egypt, one ruling the whole of Iraq, one in Iran, and so on. These men in turn relied on personal ties within their administration, so they would appoint men they trusted to oversee tax collection, the military, the law courts, and so on. Many of these men were Arabs and had come from a tribal background. And in simple terms, the tribe was run on the basis that the chief provided for his supporters and they followed him because he kept the goods flowing. This quid pro quo system for determining rightful authority meant that sensible governors redistributed tax revenue amongst their network of clients to keep them sweet. 
He therefore had to embezzle as much as he could and send as little revenue as possible to Damascus. Even amongst those not affiliated with the sitting governor, there was a strong feeling that tax revenue should remain in the province for the benefit of the local Muslim community. God's revelations were aimed at all of us. We should all share in the bounty he has bestowed. Tax revenue is our common inheritance and not the property of the caliph. Muhammad had not stipulated how the new religious community should be governed once it gobbled up such huge amounts of territory, and many felt that the Umayyad way was not the way things should be. Within the ranks of the army, both tribe and religion were having a strong influence. As you may recall, the troops often lived in separate garrison towns away from the settled population. The men gathered there were divided into fifths, or quarters, to make it easier to organise them. This practice had the effect of artificially creating new tribal groups within the army. Several small tribes would combine to create a new fifth. Then a new leader would be chosen from amongst them, and men became loyal to their new unit. This fifth was their new tribe. Soon the fifths themselves began to align with one another to form larger confederations. This was necessary because of the relatively small number of top jobs. Ideally, the head of your confederation would become, say, governor of Egypt. Your combined strength helped him to secure that position, and now he would ensure that the wealth of the province would start trickling down to you. If you weren't part of a larger organisation, then you might be shut out of all the spoils. This simplifies what happened considerably, of course, but we can talk in general about a division of the army into Kazi and Yamani factions. The caliphs were forced to balance their appointments to keep each side happy, and generally the Umayyads were successful at this. They kept the factions on side, and it was this successful management that had seen them through two civil wars. The Umayyad power base was still largely in Syria. And by this I mean Syria, Palestine, and all the deserts which surround them. This area contained the largest population of Bedouin Arabs during this time. As you know, large numbers of Arab settlers had lived there before the 630s, and many more had migrated north afterwards. As inefficient and fractious as it was, Umayyad administration was not seriously challenged until the 740s. During the siege, we saw the job of caliph pass between Abd al-Malik's sons, who agreed to succeed one another rather than place their own progeny on the throne. The last of the brothers was Hisham, who ruled from 724 to 743. Hisham was a sensible and sober caliph who held the empire together in the face of increasing challenges. As I mentioned, the wars with the Turks and the Khazars dragged on, draining blood and treasure as they went. The large Berber rebellion of the early 740s actually saw a whole army sent from Syria slaughtered in the sands. 
There were also tax revolts in Egypt and Shiite rebellions in Iraq. Hisham could see serious trouble ahead. He wanted one of his own sons to succeed him and maintain a watchful eye. But the rest of the family strongly resisted their exclusion, and so upon his death Hisham was succeeded by his nephew, Al-Walid. Al-Walid had a well-won reputation as an arrogant playboy. He promptly managed to alienate his family to such an extent that 14 months later he was murdered and replaced by his cousin Yazid III. Yazid's decision to revolt caused great ructions within the wider Umayyad family. He had Yemeni support, which set the Qaisi faction against him. When Yazid died six months later of natural causes, civil war raged openly. Yazid had nominated his brother Ibrahim to succeed him, but the latter fled as a Qaisi army closed in on him. This army belonged to Marwan II, son of Abd al-Malik's brother. Marwan had been battling the Khazars in the north and now led the best army in Syria. But too much blood had been spilt for his rule to be peaceful. The Yamani refused to serve him and he spent the next three years destroying their resistance across the province. In Iraq, local rebellions broke out, forcing Marwan into further campaigns. The strength of Syria was slowly draining away. The rebellion, which would eventually unseat the Umayyads, didn't come from Syria or Iraq. It came from Khurasan, the name given for the area in eastern Iran, which was the base camp for the Islamic armies operating there. This was the second largest force within the caliphate. It was here in Khurasan that operations were directed against India, the steppelands, and elsewhere. Khurasan had been established early on as the Arab armies swept through the Sassanid Empire. The further east they went, the harder the terrain became. Deserts, mountains, and steppelands stretched far into the distance, and the Arabs didn't have enough men to simply overwhelm the area. So instead of establishing garrison towns like Basra or Fustat, the Arabs settled down in the local cities, Merv, Bukhara, Samarkand, and instead of maintaining a separate existence from the natives, they intermingled. They had to. They needed the local elites if they were going to rule successfully. They were so far from Arabia that it was hard to find actual Arabs to fill the ranks of the army or administration. So the local population, largely Persian, played a far greater role in the Khurasani establishment than the indigenous populations of Syria or Egypt. What followed was cultural interchange. The Arabs of Khurasan became more invested in their new lives on the frontier. They bought houses, married local women, and encouraged converts to Islam. As we will discuss next episode... Conversion to the new religion had economic consequences, and so it was not always encouraged by the authorities. But life in Khurasan was different. The conquerors were not safe behind the walls of a military camp. They lived openly in a sea of other peoples, including Zoroastrians, Buddhists, Manichees, and Christians. So they opened the doors to their new faith as a way to build unity. 
But as the locals began to Arabize and Islamize, they also brought their own traditions with them. They outnumbered their new masters significantly, and so were able to forge an understanding with the Arabs that wasn't possible elsewhere. Persian traditions, festivals, ways of life survived in Khorasan and became accepted as part of the new civilization. Most significantly for the future, the Persian language was able to remain in use here and not be totally absorbed by Arabic. This petri dish community was filled with tension as well as cooperation. At times it looked like they might tear one another apart, but in the 740s they would unite. They coalesced around the one thing that they all agreed on. The government in Damascus was not in touch with their needs. As the grandsons of Abdul Malik began to murder one another, a new movement was growing in the east. For those who don't remember the initial break between Sunni and Shia in Islam, it concerned the election of the Caliph Ali. Ali was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, and those who came to be known as Shiites believed that Ali should have become the undisputed leader of Islam, and not Muawiyah. But it wasn't a simple dynastic issue. The belief amongst Shiites was that the family of the Prophet possessed special access to divine understanding. They alone would be able to correctly interpret the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad in order to provide just rule. Some believed that they might also receive further divine revelation, that God had not finished communicating with his people. The Sunni line, by contrast, was that revelation ceased with Muhammad and the Quran. So Shiite resistance to Umayyad rule was fed by both religious sentiment and political alienation. This combination was to prove decisive in Khorasan. The movement growing there had been agitating for the elevation of a different branch of Muhammad's family to the caliphal throne. These were the descendants of Abbas, the prophet's uncle. A revolt began in 747. The troops were led by a general named Abu Muslim. He was ethnically Persian and had a lot of support from the large Persian element in the Khorasani army. However, reflecting the mood of the times, he is reported to have said, I do not trace my descent to any one group to the exclusion of another. My only ancestry is Islam. He expelled the Umayyad governor and by 749 had captured Kufa and most of Iraq. Abu al-Abbas was hailed as the new caliph. The rebellion had come at the worst possible time for Marwan and the Umayyads. Exhausted from years of civil war, the sitting caliph was at that moment facing a fresh tax revolt in Egypt and a nasty attack of bubonic plague across Syria. This was the same outbreak which hit Constantinople and pushed Constantine V toward further iconoclasm. Marwan still possessed a good army, but it wasn't enough. In January 750, his forces were defeated at the Battle of the Zab River, and Abu Muslim rode on to Damascus. By August, Marwan had been tracked down and killed, along with every other member of the Umayyad family. 
One of the few to escape was Hisham's grandson, Abd al-Rahman, who made it to Spain, where the Umayyad dynasty would live on. Despite the religious excitement which surrounded this rebellion, the new dynasty established its power in the same way the Umayyads had, on the back of a large army. The Abbasids weren't going to rule in a very different way either. They continued to centralise power and crushed rebellions from local groups. Any talk of running things in a more egalitarian way was quickly silenced. The prime mover in establishing the dynasty was the second Abbasid caliph, al-Mansur. He ruthlessly consolidated all power in his own hands, first by asking Abu Muslim to put down a revolt in favour of his uncle, and then having Abu Muslim himself assassinated. This ensured that the Khurasani army would remain loyal only to al-Mansur and allow him to appoint his own men to rule in the east. One of the most important decisions to make was where to base the new capital of the caliphate. Al-Mansur didn't want to return to Khurasan. It was too far east. Placing himself there would almost certainly encourage a Syrian revolt. But Damascus itself was too associated with Umayyad rule to be suitable. Iraq seemed the obvious solution. It was geographically central and the wealthiest province in the empire. Or at least it would be. Abbasid investment in irrigation would allow Mesopotamian soil to outstrip the productivity of the Nile. The history of religious rebellions in Kufa and Basra made them ill-suited to be the new capital. So Al-Mansur ordered the construction of a new site. Just a few miles north of Tesaphon, he built Baghdad to be a new imperial city. Anxious to protect the fledgling regime, the city was to be round in shape, and at the centre, a palace with its own walls and hand-picked garrison. I've put a map at the website and on social media. Suburbs sprang up quickly, including on the other side of the Tigris River. The city would grow into a huge metropolis and become the true home of the caliphate's administration and army. Al-Mansur began to turn the caliphate into a true empire in the Persian and Roman sense. He appointed a vizier, a chief minister, to run a proper bureaucracy that would collect taxes and administrate justice throughout the provinces. Thanks to the Khurasani army, he no longer needed to rely on the Qaisi and Yamani factions, so it became easier to demand that each region forward their taxes to the capital. The caliphate was professionalizing. In Iraq, al-Mansur found a settled population who were more than happy to resume the occupations which their families had held under the Sassanids. Nestorian Christians, Mesopotamian Jews, and many of Persian ethnicity flocked to serve the caliphs and obtain positions of influence. By the time al-Mansur died in 775, the new regime felt secure enough to return to raiding the Byzantine Empire. This neatly times with the death of Constantine V in the same year. As you can see now, the caliphate was essentially involved in a decade-long civil war 
and the destruction which that caused and the restoration which followed allowed Constantine to build himself the reputation for military success which was to fuel so much of the Byzantine feeling surrounding iconoclasm. As we saw in our narrative, Al-Mansur's son Al-Mahdi and his son Harun al-Rashid would both be enthusiastic proponents of holy war against the Romans. Unusually for sitting caliphs, they both led raids personally into Anatolia, and as we saw, Harun extracted significant loot from Irene in exchange for peace. Like any new regime, the Abbasids wanted legitimacy, and leading attacks on the inveterate enemy of Islam was one way to get it. Both al-Mahdi and Harun continued the process of political and administrative centralization and the expansion of Baghdad, all of which naturally took decades. Both men sponsored the arts and sciences, and early in the 9th century, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad would be formally opened, leading to the translation of many books into Arabic, allowing Abbasid intellectuals to inaugurate a celebrated age of scholarship. We end the 8th century then with the Islamic Caliphate at its greatest height. Harun al-Rashid would become one of the most famous caliphs in history, thanks to his starring role in the Thousand and One Nights. The Abbasids would remain in power for the foreseeable future. That's the broad outline of the 8th century. The details from a Byzantine point of view are fairly simple. The failure of the siege of 717 was a key moment in the relationship between the caliphate and its smaller neighbour. The huge loss of life which Muslama's force suffered contributed to a sense that the Umayyads were not God's chosen dynasty. Now, of course, it wasn't the siege alone which did this, but as the border wars yielded less and less favourable results, the idea of once again assaulting New Rome disappeared from the agenda. The fall of the Umayyads and the transfer of the new regime to Baghdad was to prove final in this regard. The original Arabs who had driven the Romans from Syria had strong connections to Byzantium. Many of them had been Roman clients, and indeed Christians, before Muhammad's arrival. There was therefore a strong pull toward Constantinople. It was the true home of empire, and must be conquered before the world would embrace Islam. That sense of gravity was far less strong in Khorasan. In the east, memories of Rome were insignificant, but memories of Eran Shah, of Sasanid Persia, were much stronger. The new Persian-Arab mixed army which swept the Abbasids to power felt no longing for Byzantium. They were happy in their new homes on the Tigris. They looked east and south to their shared cultural homelands, not west. As we saw in our narrative, Harun was happy with Irene's payments of gold. He didn't want to conquer Anatolia. He just wanted the propaganda victory of humbling the old enemy before returning to Iraq. In the broader picture of geopolitics, the Abbasids now began to prioritise relations with the East, with the traders of India and China, rather than the poverty-stricken inhabitants of Cappadocia. 
Leo III may have saved Constantinople in 717, but ultimately the lure of the East kept the caliphate's gaze away from the Bosphorus. As historian Peter Brown put it, With the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate, the slow-moving ideals of an organised and expensive imperial administration replaced the fearful mobility of Bedouin armies. The Abbasids were a civilian dynasty. They may have won the throne through war, but would soon settle down in the palace to enjoy the fruits of victory. Their court life would no longer focus on holy war. Instead, the meticulous diplomacy of the Sassanids would re-emerge and present the world outside as revolving around Baghdad, just as it had orbited the King of Kings two centuries earlier. You see, by absorbing the whole of the Persian Empire, the Arabs had created a problem. Millions of people within the caliphate spoke Persian, remembered their old god, their old kings, and their ancient traditions. The Abbasids were men of authentic Arab stock, but beneath them were many soldiers and administrators from a Persian background. These ideas slowly began to re-emerge within the Abbasid Caliphate. The court would be run on Sassanid lines. Zoroastrian ideas of cleanliness would creep into hadiths of the Prophet, and the Iranian language would survive in the homes of provincials. Proud Arab warriors had once scorned landowning as the work of slaves. Now, to own property was once again the surest way to wealth and status. Slowly, the ideals of Arab Bedouin life would be co-opted or consigned to poetry. Perhaps I should give another example of this. After the conquests, many Arab soldiers had retired from active service, but were still paid because they'd been part of the conquests. As long as their names were registered on the lists, they would still receive their pension for having been part of the movement. As far as they were concerned, it was their right to live off the labour of the conquered people. God had led them to victory. By Abbasid times, not only was the army fully professional, but being ethnically Arab no longer conferred special status. A Bedouin warrior would sign up to his local force only to find Coptic peasants or Persian nobles standing equal alongside him. Islam had promised that all believers would be equal, And now, that was to be so. But to be clear, what had emerged was a new civilization. The Arabs did not become Persians. Arabic was firmly installed as the language of religion, culture and government. The sacred nature of the Quranic text and the fact that Arabic had become the common tongue across the empire ensured its survival and its dominance. Nor did Zoroastrianism re-emerge. Islam was the new faith of the Persian people. The Christians of Syria and Iraq clung to their religion for a long time. It was part of their identity, and the existence of Byzantium and Western Christendom reassured them that followers of Jesus still had a place in this world. But Zoroastrians had nowhere to turn, and so they embraced Islam and expressed their spirituality within its environs. 
Islamic civilization was a new construct and would survive and thrive in the provinces of the Abbasid Caliphate. I know that's a lot to take on board, and much of it seemingly tangential to the Byzantine story. Fortunately, historian Patricia Crone came up with an analogy which I think you will appreciate. She points out that there are many similarities between the Arab experience of empire and that of the Romans. In fact, the Arab story is like watching the Roman Empire on fast forward. As you know, the Romans took centuries to create their empire, slowly absorbing all the lands surrounding the Mediterranean. The Arabs did it in only 80 years. By 711, their realm stretched from Spain to the Indus Valley. Like the actual Italian Romans, the Arabs found that the wealth and political opportunities which came with empire undermined the traditional order in their home city, Medina. 300 years after acquiring their first province, the Roman Republic collapsed into civil war. Medina's rule over the caliphate lasted only 40 years. Muawiyah emerged from that civil war, and therefore in this analogy is the Arab Augustus, the man who established a more authoritarian form of government, but disguised it as a restoration of tradition. An Arab principate, if you will. In this case, the pretense being tribal and not senatorial. Fast forward 24 years and Muawiyah dies, plunging the caliphate into another civil war. This time, many non-Arabs are involved on both sides. The armies of conquest needed replenishing, and many Syrians, Iraqis and Persians had joined the ranks. The Umayyads maintained power, but Arabs aren't the only ones calling the shots. Similar, perhaps, to the collapse of the Julio-Claudians and the arrival of men like Trajan and Hadrian, non-Italian Romans, coming to the fore. Push on another 64 years and we arrive at the Abbasid Revolution. The Arab monopoly on military and political power is swept away. The Caliph remains an Arab, but beneath him the provincials have come to rule. The parallel is, of course, with the crisis of the 3rd century, when the Illyrian emperors rescued Rome from various crises. Al-Mansur establishes a new capital, just as Constantine did. His autocratic power is now celebrated. The dominant has arrived. I'm trying not to overload you with information, but Professor Crone takes the analogy all the way to the end. In the Persian infiltration of the caliphate, she sees an analogy with the Greek infiltration of the Roman Empire. Eventually, the people of Iran will revert to speaking a form of Persian rather than Arabic in everyday life, just as we've witnessed Greek retake its place in Byzantium. As we will see in the narrative as we go forward, the Baghdad caliphs will slowly begin to rely on barbarian troops to run their armies, in their case largely Turks rather than the Germans who the emperors turned to. By the 11th century, the Near East will be overrun by Turkish men who will carve out kingdoms for themselves, just as the Western Roman Empire fell to Goths and Vandals. 
In four centuries, the caliphate will complete a journey which it took the Romans eight to get through. I present this analogy only as an aid for your memory and as a comment on the nature of empire. We won't get carried away in drawing further comparisons for now. That's it for today's episode. Next time we will get into the details of life for former Romans within the Caliphate, the extent of conversion to Islam, what the Arabs thought about the Byzantines and vice versa, along with more listener questions. But before I go, I should recommend you check out The History of England by David Crowther. One of the hardest things I've found is trying to inject humour into the history of Byzantium. That's just not where my talents lie, sadly. David, on the other hand, manages to inject plenty of his sense of humour into the story of my native land. The History of England is excellent, well-researched and presented, and it will give you an audio narrative of the whole of English history, much as I'm attempting to do for the Romans. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts, or go to historyofengland.typepad.com. <laughs>